look into this area of interest for us as we try to broaden our knowledge of the background of the New Testament and how these uh, events that we're reading about affected what we read in the New Testament. We thank you for your providential control of history. We know that you are working all things out according to your will. And so even in this difficult time for us, as we've had in recent months, we know that this is part of your plan and program. And so help us, Lord, to be submissive and trust you and give us a good time this evening, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're looking at lesson nine in our study. And uh, we have looked at uh, the intertestamental history. We've talked about the parties, the various sects, the uh, Sadducees, Pharisees, Essenes, Zealots, and Herodians, though we'll say more about the Essenes when we get to the Dead Sea Scrolls here tonight, Lord willing. <clears throat> and now we're talking about cultural and religious developments. And last week we talked about the diaspora and uh, the dispersion of the Jews across the world, you know, the Western Europe and the Middle East, uh, ancient Near East and then into Western Europe. Um, and also we talked about the Sanhedrin, the development of the elders of Israel from the time of Moses up through Ezra, and then the really uh, very political and religious Sanhedrin in the time of Jesus. Uh, that sort of fell apart. There is a, 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 they have kind of tried to reestablish a Sanhedrin in Israel. Uh, I mean, they make plans. They supposedly have plans for rebuilding the temple one day, and you hear things like this. Don't follow it that closely myself. Um, but we want to look at scribes now. We've looked at uh, the diaspora and Sanhedrin, and we've talked some about scribes. Um, uh, this would be teachers of the law. This is how it's translated in modern translations. So older translations like the King James sometimes said lawyers. It's, it's a little misleading. You know, they are experts in law, so they are lawyers. But uh, the NIV and other translations have taken to the translation uh, teachers of the law because scribe, when we think about a scribe, sometimes we think about somebody uh, just copying a manuscript or something, scribe uh, like that. And they did some of that, but that wasn't the major thing that we're talking about here. And as I say, they were experts really in the study of the law of Moses. Uh, at first, this belonged to the priest as, you know, we set up the Mosaic covenant. Uh, you have priests who are supposed to be teaching the people. Uh, the Levites are spread out throughout the tribes and they're supposed to be teaching people God's law and so forth. Ezra, as he comes back into the land uh, in the uh, second, uh, uh, second resettlement after Zerubbabel, as Ezra comes in, and Ezra is called both a priest and a scribe, and uh, he is really the official uh, uh, in charge of Palestine at that time under this, the uh, Persian government. Um, so he's combining the religious office and he's 
combining a political office, but he's a scribe too. So scribes and priests are not necessarily a separate, though they often are when we get to the New Testament. Uh, this quote from Syriac, Syriac, we're going to talk about here, Ben Syriac, is, it also has a name called Ecclesiasticus, not Ecclesiastes, but there's a book in the Apocrypha called, uh, and sometimes called by its Latin name, Ecclesiasticus, uh, or the wisdom of Ben Syriac, so it's sometimes abbreviated S-I-R, <laughs> Uh, and in quoting that apocryphal in the book, one book in the apocrypha, they, they talk about scribes uh, involved mainly in study of God's word and so forth. So we say this rise is dated, you know, to the Babylonian exile because we see Ezra coming back. He's a scribe as he comes back from the exile. First Chronicles 255 suggests that scribes um, were banded together into families and guilds. So it becomes somewhat a professional kind of thing. Now, as far as we know, in the New Testament, they belong mainly to the party of the Pharisees. So you'll see references to the scribes of the Pharisees. There is no reference to scribes of the Sadducees. And there's been some debate about that. Did, did the Sadducees have their own study, people who studied the law, their own scribes? A lot of people think so. But they, uh, they don't uh, seem to be clearly delineated in the New Testament. So you have the, the scribes who were mainly belong to that party, but they're not, they're, they're somewhat distinct from them. Now, these uh, scribes preserve the Pharisaic tradition. Uh, remember, we said already that the Sadducees died out with the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Their reason for existence, their, their existence was tied up to the temple. The chief priest was a Sadducee. His son was a Sadducee. The chief priests were mainly Sadducees. And so they were concerned with the, with the Herodians and with uh, the temple. And so they, they ceased to exist as far as we know. And they didn't leave any documents behind uh, to tell us what their beliefs. That's another reason for believing they may have not had really a distinct guild of scribes. And so uh, these scribes that we have are really from the Pharisaic tradition, and they preserve this Pharisaic tradition. And this becomes codified, written down, and expands into what we call rabbinic Judaism. So that develops after the New Testament. As we get into the Middle Ages, we develop something called rabbinic Judaism, which is really the, Judea it's really the, uh, the, the father of of all Judaism today, and it comes from the Pharisaic tradition. I say here, the scribes were originators of the synagogue service. Some of them set as members of the Sanhedrin, we know. After AD 70, the importance of the scribes was enhanced, as I just talked about. They preserved in written form the oral law and faithfully handed down the Hebrew scriptures. Now, we're going to talk uh, some tonight about the oral law. So let me just say a little about that now. But there develops an oral tradition in Judaism. We call it the oral law. And uh, ultimately, this gets written down. Now, it's, as far as we know, it's not written down until about AD 200, not till after the New Testament. But the New Testament talks a lot about it. Jesus talked a lot about it. 
the people who held the oral law. And the Pharisees believed in the oral law as well as the written law. So they believed in tradition plus scripture. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. A lot of religions believed in tradition plus scripture. That includes forms of Christianity. So the Greek Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church highly value tradition. That is things that have been passed down through tradition. And so in the Roman Catholic Church, in fact, tradition is equal to scripture. Uh, scripture is not above tradition. Uh, Protestants, uh, the Reformation, held, uh, uh, claimed one of their major doctrines, sola scriptura, sola alone. Latin. Scripture alone is our authority. It's our ultimate authority. There's no other authority but scripture, nothing higher than that. Not true in the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church, you've got the magisterium of the church, and then below that, you've got scripture and tradition. And the magisterium, the pope and the bishops, they tell you what is scripture and they tell you what is tradition. And all these work together. You, you, you don't have as much magisterium in the Greek Orthodox. You've got tradition and scripture, but you've got some of that. Well, you got that developing in Judaism here. Uh, you've got this oral law that, that uh, is, Jesus is always being confronted with. So they transmitted unwritten legal decisions which had come into existence in their efforts to apply the Mosaic law to daily life. So that's understandable. You've got the Mosaic law and it doesn't, doesn't explain everything that you're supposed to do. Uh, they claim this oral law was even more important than the written law. Uh, you know, Mark seven and following, uh, you, you find that discussion about uh, what's unclean and so forth. And they are very strong on that. And their zeal to protect the law, they actually added to its requirements. They built a fence around the law of detailed specific commandments that would keep people from even uh, coming even close to breaking the law. We talked about one of those already where a tailor could not, and this is in the oral law or the Talmud today. So the Jews eventually wrote this oral law down, this tradition. Uh, the, it's basically called the Mishnah, the Mishnah, the Halakha, as they say, the, the Mishnah. And that's part of the Talmud, which is more tradition, commentaries on the Mishnah and so forth. So a Jew today, Jews don't believe in sola scriptura either. <laughs> they have the Talmud and they have uh, the scripture. And so uh, the Talmud really interprets scripture for you. And in a sense, it's really higher because it tells you what scripture means. You have all this thousands of years of tradition written down about what the rabbis said about the law. And so uh, they were, they were, these were designed to keep you from breaking the law, these extra specific fences. We talked about the, the one about the tailor who couldn't, put a needle in his clothes, as tailors often put needles uh, in their garments to pin things or pins and stuff. You couldn't do that on, on Friday because you might, you might have one in your garment after sunset and break the Sabbath because you'd be having a tool or something. Another one here, I mentioned the Sabbath day's journey. So they had a rule about a Sabbath day's journey. That was a specific distance. One was allowed 
to walk on the Sabbath. It was instituted to make sure that people would not break the commandment to rest on the Sabbath. So the Old Testament says the on the Sabbath, that's a day of rest. You're supposed to rest. You're not supposed to work. Okay, that's good. But how far can you walk or go or can you travel? What can you do on the Sabbath? And uh, so the you know, eventually the Jews established uh, principles about how that would work. In fact, the New Testament, um, the New Testament actually uh, refers to that. I, was, I didn't put up Mark 7 there. I should have mentioned that earlier. This is about the, the law uh, where some Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus, saw some of his disciples eating food with hands. They were defiled, that is unwashed. Now, it wasn't that they were, cl un they were clean, they were, they were dirty. Uh, they're not complaining about they got dirt on their hands. They're complaining about they didn't go through this ceremonial washing. And they don't eat unless they, they go through this ceremonial washing that they go through before they eat. And so uh, they're complaining to Jesus. Why don't your disciples, they say in verse 5, live according to the tradition of the elders. There it is. So there's this oral tradition instead of eating with food with defiled hands. And Jesus says, you have let go of the commands of God and holding on to human traditions. So Jesus will have none of that. This is human tradition. There's nothing in the Old Testament about what they are commanding and so forth. Um, and so, um, as I say, the Jews uh, kept coming up with these kinds of requirements that... Uh, uh, that uh, that they had to, that they were supposed to follow. One of these was this Sabbath day thing. I was going to mention about Acts one twelve here. Remember, uh, after Jesus is raised from the dead, he spends you know forty days with his disciples, and then uh, before the day of Pentecost, ten days before, is his uh, uh, ascent into heaven. In Acts chapter one, <clears throat> remember he's taken up from the Mount of Olives, so forth, and up into heaven. And it says there in Acts 1.12, then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, where Jesus ascended, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. So it's just telling you that, that, telling you, that you could walk to the Mount of Olives. If you lived in Jerusalem, you could walk to the Mount of Olives uh, because it didn't break the oral tradition or the tradition of the of Jews that you know they had come up with this I mean it is true that they were supposed to rest on the Sabbath and and, and not work and travel necessarily but how far can you go on the Sabbath and they they said well there's a certain distance and the rabbis had come up with a distance of 3,000 feet so you know you wonder how far can you go well it's 3,000 feet well how would they calculate that uh, well, they, you know, they took the command Exodus 16 that says you're supposed to stay where you're at. Uh, in Exodus 16, 29, it mentions the fact that, uh, you know, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That's on the sixth day. Everyone is to stay where he is on the seventh day. No one is to go out. Exodus 16 says no one is to go out. Well, what does that mean? Well, the rabbis tried to figure that out, and they looked at Numbers 35.5. And Numbers 35.5 5 
is talking about the Levites. When the Levites came into the land, when the Israelites came into the land, uh, various tribes were giving allotments of land, but the Levites were not given any allotment of land, any particular allotment that was the tribe of Levi. They were given, they were given allotments of land in all the tribes. In other words, they were supposed to dwell among all the tribes and teach the people, but they were given land and they were giving areas of land. They were given a place. And the way you figured out how much land this Levite got was it was 3000 foot. So you went north 3000 foot, you went east, west and south. And uh, that was the amount of land that this Levi got 3000 foot, you know, from his house in each direction was the amount of land uh, that number that uh, numbers 35.5 uh, said he would have. So from that 3,000 foot, they determine, well, okay, if that's how far a Levite's land is, that's how far you can go on the Sabbath, you know. And so that's what they meant by a Sabbath day's journey was that uh, 3,000 foot. So as we said, Jesus, you know, refused to be bound by these kind of scribal additions to the law. And this upset his enemies quite a bit. They didn't, they thought he should abide by this oral tradition as they did. Well, let's talk about now um, rabbis. We've talked about scribes some. Let's talk about a little bit, just a little bit about rabbis. Uh, the term rabbi means technically my last, my master or my Lord. It was used as a general term of respect. Uh, John the Baptist's disciples referred to John as rabbi, and Jesus was called rabbi by his disciples, and he was called rabbi by some other people who approached him. It was a term of respect. John explains that it means uh, something like teacher. He talks about it. He kind of interprets it as a teacher, a respected person. But Jesus uh, warned his disciples they should not be like professional scribes in their desire to be called rabbi. So he warned against that. Uh, number two here, although not designated rabbis in their time, the line of scholars whom history designates rabbis is usually traced to two Pharisees, Hillel and Shammai. So these men are not technically rabbis, but they're looked upon as sort of the earliest form of what we think of as rabbi, rabbis. These were respected teachers, Hillel and Shammai. Hillel, we've talked about uh, before a little bit, I think we did, because uh, Paul was a student of Gamaliel, and Gamaliel was either the son or the grandson of Hillel. So Paul was involved in the school of Hillel. That's what he studied under. When he came to Jerusalem as a young man, or maybe, uh, maybe 13, we don't know how, but when he came from Tarsus to Jerusalem, that's who he studied under, the, the school of Hillel. Now, the dates on Hillel are a little difficult to come by. I've tried to do some research on this, but it's just unclear. If you look at those dates, that's like, <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot of years there. That's 120 years. And many people say that's how long he lived. It's tough to believe, but maybe so. Uh, he was born in Babylon. Remember, the Jews had uh, been in Babylon, Babylonian captivity. And I mentioned many of them did not return and never did return. They lived until modern times in, in, in that area. 
but now there's, there's so much opposition now, most of them have had to leave. At the age of 40, Hillel came to Palestine because of his poverty, poverty hired himself out as a day laborer. He spent 40 years in study, and the last third of his life, he was the spiritual head of the Jewish people as president of the Sanhedrin. So he, uh, I'm, I'm not telling you all about his life here. I'm just saying he founded sort of a school of interpretation. That is, we're talking about this oral law. How do you interpret the Old Testament? How do you, how do you understand these commandments? And his school was more liberal, more lenient in its interpretation of the law than the school of Shammai. Shammai, uh, 50 BC to about 8030, was born in Judea. And after Hillel died in 86, 8010, he took over as president of the Sanhedrin. His school of interpretation was stricter in its interpretation of the law. For instance, the school of Hillel, um, excuse me, the school of Shammai held that divorce was only allowed for adultery. Uh, whereas the school of Hillel allowed for divorce for a variety of reasons, including, we are told in the documents, something as carnal as the husband's finding a better-looking woman or as trivial as the wife's burning a meal. Uh, after the, the destruction of the, uh, the temple in AD 70, the school of Hillel became dominant, even though Shammai took over as president the school of Hillel, this more liberal way to look at the law, like the divorce law, became more dominant uh, and the basis for rabbinic Judaism of the Middle Ages. This comes up, you know, in questions with Jesus. Some Pharisees came to him to test him and said, they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So there they're trying to get him to enter the debate between Shammai and Hillel. Because Shammai said, no, no, you can't law divorce her for any and every reason. But Hillel practically said, yeah, there's pretty much, pretty much just about anything qualifies as what the, the Old Testament talks about, some uncleanness in her uh, in Deuteronomy. So that was the, uh, that was, they're trying to involve him. I said before that Gamaliel, the son, or maybe the grandson, we're not sure, of Hillel, was a renowned teacher of the law in Jerusalem and the teacher of the apostle Paul when he came and studied. And he mentions that a couple of times he came and studied under him. All right, let's look now at another feature here, uh, the synagogue. In the New Testament, we encounter synagogues everywhere, both in Palestine and throughout the Roman Empire. Whenever the apostle Paul went to preach, he first went to the synagogue in that city. And you know, if you, if you read the book of Acts and you read his missionary journeys in Acts 13 and 14 and then 15, 16, so, you know, you just see every time he goes to a city, the first place he goes <laughs> is to the Jewish synagogue and, uh, and preaches the gospel there. Uh, the word synagogue is Greek in origin and means a gathering of people or a congregation. The Hebrew word for such an assembly is the Knesset, and that's the word used for the parliament in the modern state of Israel, the Knesset. The name synagogue came to be used for the local congregation of Jews and also for the building 
in which they met. Number two, the synagogue had its origin in the Babylonian exile. Remember, there was no, there was no uh, mention of the synagogue in the Old Testament and no need for one because there was the central sanctuary, the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, the temple was the central place of worship for all Jews, but it was destroyed in 586. And so as kind of a substitute for that, the synagogue became the place of education and worship for Jews in exile. Since the majority of Jews did not return to Israel after the exile, synagogues continued to function in the diaspora and also became established in Israel even after the reconstruction of the temple by Zerubbabel in 516 BC. So the synagogue continued on, even though you had the temple back in uh, Jerusalem. The synagogue became a place of prayer and a building for the study of scripture in most of the major cities where Jews were exiled. Communal, communal worship uh, would occur whenever 10 Jewish males were assembled. Now that's according to the, to the law that, that we, that's later written down the Mishnah. And so, you know, sometimes you didn't have that. You remember the case in Acts chapter 16. Paul gets the Macedonian call and goes over to Philippi. And uh, on the Sabbath day, it says he, he would have gone to the synagogue, but there was no synagogue in Philippi. So there weren't enough Jewish families there. It says he went outside the city gate uh, to, a, to a river there. And there's where he expected and did find Jews meeting. He found a place of prayer there. Uh, and so Paul went there to the synagogue and remember he sits down and talks to some of the women and there he finds a Gentile woman who is attending this meeting of these Jews named Lydia, who is there apparently, she's a dealer of purple. She's there on business apparently. And she was uh, what we call a God-fearer. She was a Gentile who, who believed in the God of Israel and so forth. And remember the Bible says the Lord opened her heart to receive Paul's message, and she and then her, she, some of her members of her household were saved, and Paul stayed with her there uh, in Philippi. Um, I say here number three. Um, I say number three. Uh, <laughs> in larger towns, a body of twenty-three elders formed what was called the Sanhedrin, the governing body of the synagogue community. Presiding over these elders, sometimes called rulers or elders, was the chief ruler. Uh, the Sanhedrin served as a court, uh, taking, up, uh, 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 taking up, uh, uh, you know, issues in, 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 in Judea, what's that? Civil and religious matters. Yeah. Uh, taking up civil and religious matters in, in, in Judea. They had the power to punish with scourging, uh, 40 lashes uh, minus one. Uh, remember 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. Paul says that five times he received the 40 lashes minus one. Uh, they had the power to excommunicate, to... Uh, 
to issue the death and to issue the death penalty. The latter required permission of the Romans. Remember, uh, each community had its own Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin in Jerusalem maintained eminence as the highest Jewish judiciary. The convention known as the Great Sanhedrin is presided over by a high priest and seventy elders. Um, Worship in the synagogue was simple. Uh, any Israelite was allowed to officiate, as did the Apostle Paul when he visited cities throughout the Roman world. This is why Jesus could get up and preach in the synagogue. Remember in Luke 4, there's an incident there where Jesus comes into the synagogue and he's given, he takes the scroll of Isaiah and he opens it up and he reads. Uh, and he says, this day, this prophecy is fulfilled, you know, in your eyes. The ruler of the synagogue supervised the services and oversaw the care and upkeep of the building. The synagogue service was simple, consisted mainly of prayers, the reading of scriptures, and explanation of a section of the biblical text. Later in the times, the Mishnah, remember I said the Mishnah uh, was uh, the oral law written down in the second and third centuries. The service had grown to five distinctive parts. Uh, the Shema, uh, this is that famous passage, you remember uh, in Deuteronomy ch chapter six, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. So that would, later on, they had developed this order of service, you might say. The Shema, you read that text. Then prayer, the reading of the law from the Torah, the reading of the prophets with the benediction and the explanation of the Jewish scripture. So it developed into a regular order of service. Um, here's a synagogue uh, that gives us an example. This is a synagogue in Capernaum. If you ever go to Israel, you'll go to Capernaum and you'll see this synagogue there uh, that would have been in existence. This was the synagogue Jesus would have gone to in Jerusalem when he was there, although this has been rebuilt, but the foundation is the same. Um, and so this is a fairly large synagogue, we understand, uh, if compared to other synagogues um, in the area. And this is what it would be like. Uh, apparently there would be some sort of mats or something for people to sit on. You can see there are seats here along the side and forgive me again, I forgot to go in here and I forgot to uh, do this. <laughs> I can't remember to get that pointer up there, can I? Uh, that's not it. Let's see, where is that? Oh, this is accessibility. Uh, yeah, let me bring that up there because I want to point out what I'm talking about here. Okay. So uh, uh, these were these were seats here. Some people say they were maybe the chief seats in the synagogue. Some they may have been reserved, you know, for more wealthy or something, maybe or more arist or aristocratic people. But uh, supposedly there were some sort of mats here where people could sit in the synagogue and and the, hear the preaching, the prayers, and so forth here in Capernaum. All right, we have now finished that section and we come to the last 
thing that we're going to discuss uh, in our study here, and that's the literature of the intertestamental period. And we want to talk about three things here, the Septuagint, and then we'll talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls, and then we will talk about, Lord willing, the Apocrypha. So, so I've said here, number one, we previously noted uh, that when Israel and Judah were taken into captivity, they were transplanted to regions where Aramaic was the lingua franca. So Jews, you know, in the Assyrian captivity, the Babylonian captivity, they spoke Hebrew, but they were transplanted into Assyria and Babylonia, Babylon. And the language there was a similar language, a Semitic language similar to Hebrew called Aramaic. Aramaic had become kind of the universal trade language, lingua franca, of the ancient Near East around 900 BC. And so it, it's, it, it went through the Assyrian period and the Babylonian period, the Persian period. And uh, so in the Persian, that would have been their trade language or lingua franca. Now all these, a lot of these places had their own native little tongues, local tongues, but they had a universal uh, lingua franca. So the Jews are there for 70 years. <clears throat> and so they're speaking that language. Their children are born there and their children, uh, you know, speak that language. It's the same way, you know, with people who come, uh, Hispanics who come, you know, you've seen this many times. They, they come here with their children who are young or maybe are born here and, and, uh, the parents have a, a, a Spanish accent, but the children speak perfect English. <laughs> and then, you know, by the time you get to the third generation, the children sometimes don't even know Spanish anymore. They've lost it because they picked up English as their primary language. And uh, this is kind of what happened to the Jews. Uh, they brought Aramaic back with them and probably as far as we know, became their language of everyday speech. Um, the question about, you know, how widely was Hebrew still spoken versus Hebrew is a hotly debated topic. It appears that Aramaic was the primary language, became the primary language uh, right up through the New Testament period. Uh, even though Hebrew was probably spoken quite a bit in Judea, probably not as much in Galilee and so forth. Certainly the scriptures, if you went to the synagogue, now if you went to the synagogue, we didn't talk about this, but um, they would read the scriptures in Hebrew and often somebody would get up and give an Aramaic translation, uh, an Aramaic translation for people in the synagogue who didn't know Hebrew. So this was a, this was a problem. This translation was called a Targum and eventually they're written down after the New Testament period. Uh, there are these Aramaic Targums or translations of the Hebrew scriptures, but this was done orally in the New Testament period. Number two, we've also noted with the conquest of Alexander the Great, the Greek language replaced Aramaic as the lingua franca in the ancient Near East. Now we talked about that with emphasis placed on using the Greek language from around 330 BC on, the Jews of the diaspora became predominantly Greek speakers. This use of Greek continued even after Rome ruled the Mediterranean world. 
So we've got a couple of things going on. I just said Aramaic was brought back from the Babylonian, the Persian, uh, from the Persian captivity and Babylonian captivity and the Persians allowed the Jews to return, but they kept speaking Aramaic mainly. That's the, that's, the, that's the, what we think, but they added Greek also because Greek became 330, the Ptolemies control, then the Seleucids control and so forth. And the Jews uh, picked up Greek as a, a major language, but still continue with Aramaic. Now the Jews who lived out of Judea, you know, out of Palestine, their language was predominantly Greek. They lost their Hebrew, they lost their Aramaic, they were Greek speakers. And uh, this continued, as I said, even when amazingly Rome ruled the Mediterranean world. Uh, this was always kind of a mystery to me when I first got saved because I had studied a lot of Latin in school and the Roman Empire, you know, was in full swing, but the New Testament was written in Greek. Why was that? Well, that's because most, pe most people in the Roman Empire and the first century spoke Greek. Most people in Rome in the first century spoke Greek. There's more Greek spoken in the, in the city of Rome than there was actually Latin. So Greek uh, dominated. So Greek dominated up until about the year 300 throughout the Mediterranean world. And so that's why the New Testament is written in Greek. Paul can write to the Roman church in Rome. He doesn't write in Latin. He writes in Greek because that was the dominant language throughout the Roman Empire, even when he writes to Roman colonies like Philippi and Roman colonies like Corinth, the, the, the dominant language is Greek. Now, eventually that changes and we'll have to talk about that. So if you look later on, Latin begins to dominate, but that's not till the year 400 and later, 300 there, about 400. Then Latin takes over and begins to dominate. And the, and the, the knowledge of Greek is lost in the Western empire, Western Europe uh, and along North Africa there. They don't know Greek anymore, but in the New Testament period, it's all about uh, knowledge of, uh, of Greek. Uh, number three here, Jews were exposed uh, to Greek as their land was first under the control of the Ptolemies and Seleucids with their policy of forced Hellenization. Antiochus of Syria forced about 2000 Jewish families to move from Babylon to Phrygia and Lydia in Asia Minor, I showed you a map of that last week. Ptolemy of Egypt took many Jews into captivity to Alexandria um, during the invasion uh, of Palestine. Alexandria's importance as a Jewish center, uh, of course, dates from that time. Um, and Alexandria becomes a very important place for Jews. Uh, a large number of Jews lived in in, in Egypt right up until modern times, uh, just like they lived, you know, in uh, Iran, uh, modern Iran to modern times, Iraq, they lived in Egypt until kind of forced out in modern times. But it became, Alexandria was a very important city and there were separate divisions of, the, some people say one quarter, some say two quarters, a lot of, divi there were about five divisions and there was a lot of Jews there living in Alexandria. 
we showed you this map before, kind of Jews in the diaspora were just spread out everywhere. Remember, here's uh, Phrygia we talked about, and Lydia over here, and, and so here's Alexandria down here. So Jews were everywhere, and they're picking up the uh, Greek language. This is all involved in what we're talking about, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the, the Old Testament. So I say number three here, uh, as generations of Jewish people lived outside of Palestine, their ability to understand Hebrew was diminished. In order to understand the Old Testament, they needed a translation into Greek, just like we do. We need translations of the Hebrew into English. We need translations of the Greek into uh, English. Well, they needed translations of their Old Testament uh, Hebrew into Greek. That's now, Greek is now their native language for both the synagogue service and for private reading. That translation of the Old Testament into Greek is called, the first one translation, is called the Septuagint. Uh, Septuagint comes from the Latin word for 70, the name suggesting the number of translators who produced it. So one tradition uh, suggests that there were 70 translators. We'll talk about that in just a moment here. Number five, we have no uh, certain information as to the origin of this Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint beyond the fact that it was translated in Alexandria during the reign of Ptolemy the, Ptolemy the second Philadelphus. That was just his uh, name given to him, Philadelphus, Ptolemy the second Philadelphus, who reigned from 285 to 247 BC. So what you'll see sometimes, and you might even hear Pastor Ken say this, he'll be mentioning he'll mention this, you'll hear the date 250 BC, uh, 250 BC, because they're just looking at his reign, 285 uh, to 247, and they're sort of coming up with a round number of, uh, you know, 250. Probably a little earlier than that. We now know it's probably earlier around 280, but sometime during his reign, we're pretty sure. Now there's, there's a, a very important uh, document that discusses this called the Letter of Aristeus. Uh, this is a document that's in what's called the Pseudepigrapha. It's a Jewish writing, but it's not considered to be authentic. It, it's considered to preserve a probably a lot of true tradition, but everything it claims is not thought to be true. So it's, it's in this category that we'll talk about later on. The last thing we'll talk about is this pseudepigrapha. Jewish legend mentions 70 or 72 translators. Now, according to this tradition, the letter of Aristeus, the, uh, the king told it, uh, King Philadelphus, he established the great Alexandrian library, the, the most huge, biggest library, the most amazing library in the ancient Near East is the Alexand Library of Alexandria. Have you ever seen that movie? What's that movie called? Uh, I'm trying to think of that movie, Pansy, where, you know, they're looking for... Uh, uh, I don't know, they're looking for those old things, you know, and they find the, uh, they find that treasure chest down there somewhere in under the church. You know what I'm talking about? No. 
I can't, I can't think of that uh, movie. But anyway, uh, they they claim they find the the letter of they find the uh, the Library of Alexandria there. You know, they they light up the torches and the, the things light up. And the whole room lights up and all that down there. You know. Yeah. That is the national treasure. National treasure or something like that anyway. Mm -hmm. So anyway, one of the things they claim to find there, somebody sent me a text and said uh, national treasure, Bill Wilson. <laughs> so in that in that movie, one of the things they you see them walking in there and there's these scrolls, uh, you know, old scrolls stuff. Because uh, and at this period, they didn't have the codex. So this this kind of book we have right here we binded on the end. This is called the codex form of the book. We call this a book, but uh, they called, you know, in ancient times, this is a book, a scroll. We call it a scroll. They call it a book. And those were not invented until the New Testament era, until about the, about the year 100. Sometime around the year 100, we believe the codex form so when they show that movie and they're walking in there, they're finding these scrolls laying on these tables and so forth like that. Well, according to the tradition, uh, the king, Philadelphus, uh, was told that, hey, you know, there's no copy of the Jewish scriptures. He was, he was trying to find all the great documents of the ancient world. He wanted them all in his library. And it was a tremendous library. Unfortunately, it burned in a fire, but but it was a tremendous library of documents. And uh, we know who the librarians were actually. We have the list of the names of the librarians and so forth. And uh, it's according to this tradition, this legend, um, he wanted a copy of the Hebrew scripture. So he sent to Jerusalem and had 72 scholars, six from each tribe, six from the 12 tribes of Israel, come to Jerusalem and translate the scriptures. Well, most people don't believe that's exactly true, but I won't go into all the details about that. <clears throat> but clearly this is translated by Jews, a translation, uh, the tra as I say here, the Torah, the Pentateuch was translated first and the rest of the Old Testament was added over time. So this tradition, the letter of Aristeus talks about the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books. That was translated first in the reign of Philadelphus. And then over time, the next hundred years or so, we believe uh, the rest of the Old Testament was added. So the Septuagint is commonly abbreviated LXX. You know, that's the Roman numeral L50, X10, X10 for 70. So you'll see if you read some books about this, you might see somebody write LXX. They're talking about the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, done by Jews in Alexandria around 250 BC, probably a little earlier. When Christianity came along, it adopted the Septuagint uh, as its Bible, since the early church was primarily Greek-speaking. Here is, uh, I just show you a copy of a scroll. This is Leviticus written in Greek, about 8200, later copy of, of what that looks like. So here is uh, the Bible of the early church. 
That is, if you're in Corinth, if you're in Philippi, you had uh, the original Old Testament translated in the Septuagint, and then that produces a Greek Old Testament, and you have your Greek original New Testament, and that's the early Christian Bible in most of the Christian world. So Christians were Gentiles mainly. Most Christians, you know, were Gentiles. Not a lot of Jews were converted. Most Gentiles, most Christians were Gentiles and they didn't know Hebrew. So just like we read our Old Testament in English, they read their Old Testament in Greek. And of course they could read their New Testament uh, without any trouble. And so this knowledge of the Old Testament um, was amazingly dispersed uh, very quickly. Uh, when you when you read when you read the New Testament, it becomes obvious that that the people that Paul writes to, the Gentiles that Paul writes to, seem to be very familiar with the Old Testament. This has always been a kind of an amazing thing to me. But you take a passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and Paul uses there to warn the Corinthians. He wants to warn them. And he uses the example of Israel in their wilderness wanderings. And he talks there, he says, you remember how Israel passed under the cloud and under the sea? Uh, he, he quotes from Exodus 14, uh, you know, as though they should know Exodus 14. He describes how they ate that bread, that manna, that miraculous bread, and how they got water from the rock in Exodus and Numbers. Uh, he talks about the fact, don't become idolaters as some of them did. The problem he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 is going to these uh, pagan temples, these Christians going to the pagan temples involved in idolatry. And uh, he quotes from Exodus 32, he quotes, he quotes from a lot of Old Testament passages there that are just amazing that the knowledge of that Old Testament spread very quickly. And the reason it spread quickly was due to the Septuagint, which seems to be sort of readily available to these Gentile churches. I'll say here, number six, the Septuagint was of great importance in the history of both Judaism and the church. It brought the Old Testament revelation to both Greek-speaking Jews and Gentiles. The church adopted the Septuagint as its Old Testament. It's clear that early Christians had little interest in the Hebrew Old Testament, but were content with their Greek Bible. Well, we are too. Most of us don't take time to learn Hebrew. We're content with our English Bibles. When Jerome was commissioned to make a Latin version of the scriptures, uh, Latin, uh, when Jerome, who was, he was the greatest theologian of the church, Augustine, uh, the most important early church theologian around the year 400, initially wanted him to translate from the Septuagint rather than going back to Hebrew. Remember, he showed you this map here. So the time we get to AD 400, this is what we got. So Augustine is down here in North Africa, Bishop of Hippo down here. And he's writing to Jerome because uh, Jerome, the greatest scholar of the day, is making a Latin translation. Uh, 
of the uh, of the of the Bible, because initially, you know, for the first 300 years, Greek was spoken throughout this area, and Greek still dominated, and so you could read the Septuagint. But now, now Latin is dominating. You still got Greek over here in Greece and so forth, uh, but mainly it's Latin. So now people need a Latin translation. And there had already been some. They came about in the year 200 on 300. They, they were early Latin translations, but they needed a, a, a very good one, a very, uh, very specific one. And so Jerome is commissioned to translate the Bible into, uh, Hebrew, uh, into Latin. But Augustine, the greatest theologian, says, hey, you should translate from the Septuagint. Well, that's foolish. You want to translate from the original document from Hebrew, not from Greek, but it just shows you how much they thought of uh, the Greek Old Testament. It had become like an inspired version, you know, just like we have King James only today. Well, it was Septuagint only, you know, it was just like, this is it. We've been using this for 300 years. So it's got to be right. And, you know, this is what we should use. But you know, Jerome prevailed ultimately, and they translated the Vulgate from the Hebrew. I say here, the Septuagint number seven was a great missionary tool in the early days of the church. Before the formation of the New Testament canon, the Septuagint was the Bible which missionaries like Paul appealed to for the basis of their teaching. The fact that Paul often found acquaintance with Old Testament ideas among the people of his day was due primarily to the influence of the Septuagint. Remember in Acts 17, Paul goes from Thessalonica to Berea, and it says these Bereans, they examine the scriptures every day to see if what Paul was teaching was correct. Well, what were they examining? <laughs> they were examining this Septuagint because they didn't know Hebrew. They were Gentiles in that world. Finally here tonight, uh, well, I'm not quite finally, number eight, the importance of the Septuagint to the New Testament cannot be underestimated. So that's what we're kind of getting to here. Uh, what, did this Greek, what did this Greek Old Testament have to do with the New Testament? We know that Paul was using it. We know that Paul, when he went out and, and proclaimed the gospel, he was appealing to the Septuagint, which they could have gotten in Greek manuscripts and could read. First, to the writers themselves, it provided a Greek theological vocabulary for the recording of the gospel. This is a problem. You know, whenever missionaries go to a, a, a new tribe, a new, a new, a new group of people, uh, never reached people, they, don't, they have a language, but they don't have any theological terms for repentance and justification. What do you do with that? You know, do you make up terms? What do you do? Well, you know, what are you going to do... Uh, with the writers of the New Testament. They, they're writing in Greek, but the Old Testament's in Hebrew. Uh, so the translation of the Old Testament into, into, into Greek already provided theological vocabulary. The general religious vocabulary of the Greek language was pagan in char character, but many elements of that pagan vocabulary had lost their original significance and acquired the meaning of the Old Testament vocabulary by being used in the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament. For instance, I'm sure you've heard this mentioned maybe in sermons, the common Greek word for sin in the New Testament, 
hamartia, originally meant a missing of the mark, a defaulting from a standard, an era of the intellect only. If you heard sermons, you've heard a preacher say, you remember hamartia was the word you use when you shoot an arrow and you miss the target. You have, that's a hamartia, that's, that's you missed the mark. Um, well, it didn't have any idea of sin. Hamartia wasn't guilt. It was just you made a mistake, you know. But sin is more than a mistake. The ideas of incurring guilt before God come mainly from its use to translate such concepts in Hebrew. So hamartia was used in the Old Testament to translate the incurring of guilt. So the New Testament writers had a word for sin already. The common word for messenger, Greek messenger, Greek word for me is angelos. Of course, we get our word angel from angelos. Uh, but in Greek, the, it just meant messenger. But in the Septuagint, it was used to translate the word malak, which is the word for superhuman beings, angels, like those who visited Abraham in Genesis 19. Thus, you had a word already for angel, angelos had been transformed by the Old Testament uh, Septuagint to not just a messenger, but a superhuman, an angel, as we know of them to be. Well, let's talk about one final thing, and then we'll close. Number nine, the Septuagint being translated in the third century BC was based on very early manuscripts of the Old Testament. Obviously, it was translated from Hebrew, had to be translated from very old manuscripts as early as the third century. As old are possibly older than manuscripts in our possession today. Now, we're going to talk about what kind of manuscripts we have in our possession, but until the Dead Sea Scrolls, the earliest manuscripts we had of the Old Testament were around the year AD 1000, not 1000 BC, but AD 1000. And so, the Septuagint is translated from very early Hebrew manuscripts, and it may then, on a rare occasion, and this would be very rare, preserve the original Hebrew text. You can see an example of this in Genesis 4.8. If you look at the King James, it says, And Cain talked with Abel, his brother. And he came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. Well, it just says, and Cain talked with Abel, his brother. It doesn't say what he said. The Hebrew seems to imply, if you look at the Hebrew text, it seems to imply Cain said something to his, his brother Abel, but there's nothing there. Now, the Septuagint and other versions uh, the Vulgate, uh, Syriac, there's some other, other languages besides Greek, but the, the Greek adds these words. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. So you see those words, let's go out in the field. The, the CSB, uh, Cain said, the Christian Standard Bible, Cain said to his brother, Abel, let's go out into the field. So these translations have, they think, and they'll have a footnote there. If you look in your NIV, you'll see a footnote after these words, let's go out in the field telling you, listen, we took these words 
from the Septuagint because they, we think they're really preserving the correct tradition here uh, about what Cain said. Let's go out in the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother, Abel, and killed him. So that's kind of an interesting situation. All right. We have covered the uh, Septuagint. We didn't get to the Dead Sea Scrolls, but we will, Lord willing, get there next time. Now, next time we, uh, let me uh, get out of this. We don't meet next time. That would be uh, the 25th because that's our Thanksgiving break. So it will be, Lord willing, uh, two weeks from tonight. Two weeks from the night before we have our next meeting. Any questions? Thank <laughs> you.